I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience, where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. So last week, mm-hmm. uh, we had a little funny thing happen. A little oopsie daisy, a little, little early bird special. So, first, let me preface this our dear friend Dylon is moving to yes. uh, somewhere outside the country. Across the pond. Yeah. And super excited for them. So Allie and I went out and uh, had was, a glass it was of wine. Wine Wednesday. It was great. Uh, I got home. I remembered that I needed to upload the episode. Did that. Wrote my little snippet. Wonderful. The next morning. So this is. So Carrie Ann is in charge of submitting our our audio to our hosting site, which uploads to all of our our streaming services. streaming services yeah and it's a very important job and i very appreciate you you're so welcome i enjoy it um i like writing our little snippets mm-hmm. um i go back and listen so while i'm uploading them i am listening to the episode and like working on transcripts or whatever else i mm-hmm. need to do mm-hmm. so um i downloaded the episode from mm-hmm. our editor the incredible jacob mm-hmm. um was listening to it on my computer while I was uploading it onto our host site. And didn't think a damn thing about it. Our sound was great, you know. Just, just sounding flawless. Flawless. So really. funny. So approachable. <laughs> All the things we hope to be every day. Um, so then it's strange about 8 o'clock in the morning on thursday uh when i know our episode has hit and we have um people listening Mm -hmm. all of the people who are in different time zones to the east like all of the people in europe and australia and all those guys germany when they get up right seven hours ahead of us or more or more um our other dear friend texts me and says hey um something's weird with your sound audio i can only hear ally so i go and listen to it and i had been listening to the correct version uh-huh i had uploaded your half of the audio that i typically send to our ed- or that i send to our editor because mm-hmm. i split our audios um so he can you know edit each of us separately um so those of you who were up um and listening to our episode before about 9 30 uh, last <laughs> thursday uh definitely got the unedited alley only version the unedited the possibilities of what that <laughs> content could have been well that's what are made vast. me panic oh, because yeah. you and i ramble oh yeah and in the beginning we always have this little snippet where we talk to our editor because mm-hmm. we just adore him so before every episode we say a little something we talk about you know if we've got anything coming up that yeah. he needs to know about it's like a one-way conversation yeah yeah um, we, i burp a yeah. lot <laughs> um you might hear cans opening as we are oh, yeah. enjoying beverages talking to the animals yeah or it's chaos and luckily we didn't like talk shit or anything but like that's that was a complete possibility <laughs> that was my biggest fear is i went and immediately my brain was like what the fuck did we talk about <laughs> yeah. that jacob 
knows to take out because right. he knows us at this point. Mm-hmm. So he knows what we want, what we don't want. He mm-hmm. can like read our minds, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so my brain just went to, holy shit, did we say anything about, mm-hmm. you know, anything, 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 but we didn't, we did not. We're just brilliance. I love it. <laughs> We're so also so funny. Are we? Yeah. <laughs> I am so. <laughs> Especially when I can only hear your half of the conversation. I'm like, I know exactly what I'm saying. Right. But it was, you know. Well, and half, and like whenever you're doing your your portion, I'm always like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then I just like insert myself in, in like 30% of it. So I was like, yeah. I can only imagine like what that sounded like. I was on my way to work. You had called me and you're like, hey, I'm also late for work. Can you fix it? And I was like in the car. And so I could not. Yeah. So then, of course, my anxiety just like shot to the roof. But it was fine. It was totally fine. It was just one of those mornings. Um, Everybody was really great about it. Yeah. Yeah. Our friend who reached out to us, LJ, then proceeded to listen to, I think, the rest of the episode. Like that? what like that yeah no <laughs> because there was one thing we took out about backstreet boys versus nsync and, yeah uh-huh. um and she was like oh this person's in the other band yeah i know that's why we so, took it out exactly I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah. i mean they're easy to confuse they were about the same time mm-hmm. all boys yeah i get it yeah at least you didn't confuse them with 98 degrees no i did not um but yeah, so I think she went back and like was listening to the whole thing, which oh, just no. cracks me up. Just a party of I one. I just love that for mm, her. Mm. What a great journey. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so I was running late, ended up getting there. Our episode uploaded. Everything was beautiful. We have, you know. And we all have, the, the late risers were none the wiser. Yeah. Oh, that rhymed. Oh, all of this happening in real time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also love Allie and I established a rule really early on that both of us cannot freak out at the same time. Yeah, it's working. So Thursday was my day. Um, The past two weeks have basically been my weeks. So So it's Allie's turn now. I'll schedule a mental breakdown for next week. Thank you. If you you would, that'd be great. Yeah. Guy, even things back out. Make sure I'm not taking too many of your calories without also putting calories into this relationship. No, I got you, girl. I appreciate you. What else we got going on? Um, well, I'll continue talking about me because, you know, Perfect. that's where we are this morning. Love it. Um, so I went to the mountains this weekend mm-hmm. to hang out with my family. And um, yeah, we're coming off of a, a holiday weekend. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Um, so I, w- I was uh, driving home and turned on my favorite spotify playlist that i made myself mm-hmm. and dolly parton's traveling through uh. came on and i like whenever something makes me really happy or is giving me extra dopamine i listen to the the same song three or four times in a row mm-hmm. and i just sat there and just vibe into dolly vibing with dolly i love it it's the best dolly parton song i think i think so too it's really my favorite and it always makes me think of trans america it makes me think of the CD that you burned me when we first became friends. Oh, my God. I was so into mixtapes. You were. I love that about you. I, so when I got a new car, y'all, I had a Toyota Avalon for all of my life. Like, literally. It was so old. There was like 300 and something thousand miles on it. There was a gay cowboy sticker on it. Yeah. I think that fell off. I had a mustache on the front of it for a while. I remember that. Like, it went through so much. It took me so many places. But I had I had all these mix CDs, like, stuffed in the console and, like, <laughs> in my glove compartment. 
Every, there was a mix for everything. So I had to make the decision when I got rid of the, the lawn, what, what was I going to do with all these CDs um, that had scratch marks and stuff in them. So I lost a lot of my, my old CDs and stuff. But I, I was really excited because then I had the capacity or ability to plug in to the Spotify and the Apple, Apple right. Music. So you can still make mixed tapes. They're just mixed playlists now. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I was really, really thankful for the upgrade. Yeah, um, for sure. My safety was in jeopardy. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. What about you? I feel like I've been talking a lot. Is there anything? How, how was your long weekend? Good. I went on a really awesome walk this morning. I like mm-hmm. recreated an old walk when I used to live in another neighborhood. I went to like the coffee spot down there. It was just like such a pretty walk. So yeah, me and Obi went for a little trot. Um, Cute. And like the weather's changing. It's like you can kind of feel like, you know, the there, fall. Yeah. In the mountains, there was one tree that had red leaves. Really? Just oh. one. Like in the sea of green, all the different shades of green. So we're getting close. We're getting close. Oh, my goodness. I am so ready for the Blue Ridge and the leaves changing. I am so ready for our cult, uh, October oh, cult movie. That's yes. all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. We still have September coming out next yep. week. Yep. But um, just we're getting into spooky season mm-hmm. and all that that entails. Yay. Let's talk about some psychology and history. Let's do it. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. All right. Okay. (laughs) So let's take a deep breath this morning or today. Okay. (laughs) This morning? Yep. Um, I feel like our last few episodes have been really heavy. Yeah. Um, Of course, we've talked a lot about trauma. So this week, we're going to do something light and fun and a little unusual. Mm -hmm. Okay. We are going to talk about synesthesia. Oh, wow. So. Okay. I, you're giving me the look of, I may have heard this word, but I don't actually know what it means. Exactly. Yes. You read my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I know you at this point. So synesthesia is from the ancient Greek word sen, which means together, and esthesis, or sensation, um, which basically put together means to perceive together. So you're perceiving different sensations at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay, 11 sensation. <laughs> so according to Wikipedia, synesthesia is a phenomenon in which stimulation of one sensory or cognitive pathway leads to an involuntary experience in a second sensory or cognitive pathway. So a synesthete may not just hear a word, like if I, when I say the word synesthesia, mm-hmm. you may not just hear it, you may also actually see it in your mind's eye or taste it or Mm -hmm. feel it Mm -hmm. like different words can feel different ways sometimes you might associate a number or a letter with a gender personality and these are called perceptual couplings so this is a really weird and kind of big concept Mm -hmm. um and it's also not something that most people will be overly familiar with so stop me at any point and ask as many clarifying questions as you like right and i wonder too yeah it doesn't affect everybody not everybody experiences this right we're gonna get into uh percentages of the population all that in just a minute perfect but it's pretty rare um and i think that that's one of the reasons that people either don't um understand it don't know about it or don't believe it's real yeah yeah 
Because it sounds kind of preposterous when you think about it. Right. It sounds like um, the snozberries taste like snozberries or like the gum from Willy Wonka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Similar. Snozberries taste like snozberries. It's just what it reminds me of. Yeah. The most common form is grapheme color synesthesia or colored hearing. Mm -hmm. And this is where numbers or letters are perceived as color. Like the number seven may be red. And when you think of this number or see this number written down, you may see it as red. Oh, wow. Alternatives include physically feeling words or sounds. Um, One person reported that feeling um, when they hear a trumpet, they feel it on the back of their neck. Or um, a violin, when they hear a violin, may feel like the nerves are being touched on your leg. So it's like hearing it stimulates a different part of your brain, which causes sensations in other areas. Right. The taste of food might also produce a specific color. Um, You might taste words when you think, read, hear, or say them. Mm -hmm. There's a person on TikTok um, who we will... Uh, track down and share one or more of um, her TikToks this week. People write to her and tell them tell her what their names are, and then she will say the name and then explain what it tastes like. Oh wow! Um, and she grew up in Napa Valley, California, so she has a really refined palate. Uh huh. Um, and of wine. so she, yeah, it's like wine country. Mm-hmm. So she um, is well, able to like break down. It's more than just, oh, your name tastes like cherries. She'll be she'll say, you know, on the back of your tongue it kind of tastes oaky and then as I finish saying it it feels crisp and so Uh-huh. Oaky afterbirth. Oaky afterbirth. I want somebody to uh to try the pasta recipe and and do that as well. Ooh, <laughs> that would be a fun challenge. Yeah. yeah. Those of you who have received the pasta recipe, mm-hmm. get on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that she's done Allison yet. And of course, she's never going to do my name. But fingers crossed. Um, it could happen. It's kind of like having my name on a keychain. I've yeah. just given up hope. Yep. You're like, never going to have a Coke. I'm never going to have a Coke. I'm never going to have a keychain with my name on it. I'm so sorry. Um, Which is fine. Is it? <laughs> but growing up, I was definitely a little salty about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, There are basically two types of synesthesia. Projective, which are people who see actual colors, forms, or shapes when it's stimulated. Or associative, which means people who feel a strong involuntary connection between the stimulus and the sense it triggers. Mm. So, no one seems to really know how synesthesia develops. Studies have confirmed that it is biological, automatic, and unlearned meaning you can't learn how to become a synesthete. However, one theory for how it develops is that during childhood, children are introduced to abstract concepts for the first time about the same time, which is why letters and numbers might have a color or even a location in space. Right. I'm thinking like fridge magnets. Right. We're going to talk about fridge magnets too Um, in just a second, though, because... We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Um... But when you're learning, because you learn about colors and numbers and relationships all at the same time, so they think that there might just be some cross-wiring happening. That makes sense. Yeah. It may be inherited. Researchers at Baylor University have identified a region of DNA on chromosome 16 that might relate to colored sequence synesthesia. 
It could also be a defect in the neutral structure, like the connections between the different senses that remain intact. So it could have something to do with neurotransmitters, something met for one part of the brain ends up in another. Or it could be that some people's brains lack chemicals called inhibitors that keep neurotransmitters in check. Here, here we go with your percentages. Oh, okay. So synesthesia is present in 2 to 4% of the population. Oh, wow. So two in every two to four people in every 100, mm-hmm. which sounds a lot bigger than it actually is, I think. Well, and those are of varying degrees, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. Not every person who has synesthesia, some of them don't even realize that they have it because it's either so mild that they just assume everyone experiences it Mm -hmm. or um, they don't ever research it, Mm -hmm. so they just don't know. Um, So it could be a bigger percentage. Well, let me ask you. So I, I think I talked about this in one of the earlier episodes, but like when I see a calendar... I see it, like, I, I can visualize the year. That's, like, the only example I could have. Okay, so tell when me I, when I when I visualize the year, it's almost in, like, a sideways horseshoe. Oh. So January and December are, like, above each other, and they kind of go to the left and August and September. So we're, like, right here in, our, in my calendar really? brain. Mm-hmm. Why isn't it a full circle? It's just not? That's a great question. I don't know. Huh. I actually, so we talk, I mentioned spatial synesthesia a few minutes ago, but I think that might be what that is. So it's, you consistently see the same thing whenever you picture the year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that would be maybe a really, really mild form of synesthesia. Yeah, like like the year when months in relation to, to other months. Right. So if I'm thinking, okay, it's it's January and I'm going on vacation in July, uh-huh. then I can see spatially those in my brain. Weird. I can't do that. Huh. So when you think of a, a year, mm-hmm. what does that look like? I think of a year. If that doesn't visually manifest at all? No. Huh. I mean, if I were to try, like, I could probably come up with something. Why don't you try? (laughs) Well, if I were to really, I guess, start thinking about a year, and the reason I don't think it's synesthesia for me is because I could imagine it, like, each month, maybe three months. Yeah, like like one of those calendar cutouts you see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so January, February, and March on the first row, April, May, and June, like, if I'm thinking about quarters. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not a thing I would typically think about. It's not a thing I visualize. Hmm. I just have a really vivid imagination. Mm-hmm. You do. It's kind of like, um, can you picture a purple apple? Uh, barely. I can picture a purple apple almost immediately. Mm-hmm. But I don't have any association with it in space or anything like that. So I can force myself to do it. And, like, I can imagine your circle thing, mm-hmm. your semicircle, um, but it's just not the way that my brain works automatically. Oh, I would love to know, like, what little quirks our listeners have. We'll have to do a poll. Oh, that's room. a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, maybe, like, you, people who are listening to this are like, oh, my brain does this weird thing that I didn't know was weird. Right. And that's the thing is you never know. Just, like, what perceived colors, like, the yeah. whole philosophy thing, like... Is this cat really white? Is this pillow really yellow? <laughs> yeah. Is Schrodinger's cat dead or alive? The answer is both. <laughs> um, 
But having one type of synesthesia gives you a 50% chance of having a second, third, or even fourth type. So if you have kind of the spatial synesthesia uh-huh. where you have, you're thinking about time and calendars and dates and relationships in space, you're also more likely to think about colors associated with words or the way that food tastes or, hmm. you know, have other overlapping synesthesias. Maybe I'll have like a giant epiphany. All right, let's, let's plan on that. Okay. <laughs> We can do that. Okay. I'll schedule it in. Perfect. Pencil me in. When we talk about neurodivergence, um, which is just such a great way to talk about different types of brains, we're typically talking about autism spectrum disorders, ADHD, dyslexia, any way that the brain works differently than neurotypical brains. Um, According to spectrumnews.org, Synesthetes often have sensory sensitivities and attention differences, which suggests that they may be connected. So mm-hmm. people who are already neurodivergent may be more likely to have synesthesia. Got it. I don't know that I would call, or I would certainly call synesthesia atypical, but that doesn't necessarily mean that brains are abnormal. Like, it's just a variation. It's just a different way of experiencing mm-hmm. this reality. So... We've got another TED Talk, because you know how much I love them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one is from TED Ed, so mm-hmm. TED Education, and it's called What Color is Tuesday? Exploring Synesthesia with Richard Sytok. Yep. Yep. Um, and they say synesthesia is a trait, kind of like having blue eyes, but it's not a disorder because there's nothing wrong. Um there's also a link to having a superior memory because you have multiple moods for or multiple modes for um like reinforcing memories. Oh yeah, like the smell thing it just brings you right back. Oh yeah, exactly. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. So there's so what's really cool here is the correlation between these senses already. Like um we use this in everyday language you're a sweet person Mm -hmm. or that's a sharp cheese and your brain is like yes those are two different senses Mm. but obviously they go together sure so um like this already happens with sight and sound movement um we already map them so close to one another that it just makes sense it kind of bleeds together right those lines are blurred so earlier you mentioned growing up with the alphabet magnets on the fridge Mm mm-hmm um and we weren't allowed to have them just so we're clear we didn't have them my why baby, not my babysitter had them why didn't you have them i don't think my parents loved me oh well, that's no i think it's, i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i we didn't have them but like <laughs> i'm familiar with them i'm pr- i'm sure we had them but i can't actually say that with confidence at this moment mm-hmm. but i feel like we had them did you i don't know unclear who's to say okay so your comment earlier was about like associating a color with a letter because of maybe these refrigerator magnets Mm -hmm. um all right so if you grew up with these alphabet magnets on the fridge um you may have a stronger association with like the color a being red because you have a memory associated with it right 
Again, that's not true synesthesia as the research would show it, though you can still experience that connection. Right. But every A that you look at, you might not imagine to be red. Mm-hmm. It's probably like that particular font or Absolutely. you know something about that that you have a memory with. You may also, sorry, this is kind of a weird transition, but you could also experience um, some forms of synesthesia if you happen to be taking a hallucinogenic drug. Okay. Yeah. So with a hallucinogenic drug, it's doubtful that new connections in the brain are being made. Mm-hmm. However, we can... Um, possibly assume that existing conditions or existing connections become used in a way that's er, neurochemically altered for a few hours. So instead we can assume that existing connections become used in a way that's neurochemically altered for a few hours. Mm -hmm. So any inhibitors that would normally be blocking neurotransmitters from crossing um, into different senses are lifted, right? Which oh, is wow. why certain people might enjoy taking hallucinogenic drugs when they're at music concerts because you can see the music more, or you could, you know, experience it in a really different way. Gotcha. According to um, my research, there's no established way to diagnose synesthesia. However, they have a few. There are a few um, agreed upon commonalities that would help with a diagnosis if you want to informally diagnose yourself. Number one, it's involuntary. So you can't control it. Um, Which I think, again, goes back to like the fridge magnets or even your calendar and how I know it's not synesthesia for me is that I can control um, the way that the calendar shows up in my brain or how, you know, if I'm imagining the letter A, I can change it in my mind to be any color. Mm Mm-hmm. Number two, it's experienced rather than imagined. So you don't have to think about it. Like if we were playing a game and I said, what color is the word cat? You might be able to come up with an association because you thought about it and imagined it, not because you've actually, you're experiencing it. Right. Uh, Number three, it's durable, meaning like it's always the same. In 1987, researchers led by Baron Cohen asked a synesthete to describe the color that 100 words triggered. A year later, they repeated the test without any warning and found that the associations were consistent more than 90% of the time. So 100 random words, they asked what color they were. A year later, 90% of those were the same. Hmm. In contrast, people without synesthesia who only had a two-week interval, not a year-long interval, between the two tests were consistent less than 20% of the time. Interesting. Isn't that, that fascinating? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I just think that that is so cool. And I also love that people have studied this. It's yeah. not just, um, you know, people explaining their lived experiences, but being able to compare that uh, research is really fascinating. Um, number four, it's memorable. The secondary perception will be more memorable than the primary one. So it might be like, oh, we met 10 years ago. Your name is red. And like my brain can recall a list of names that I associate with the color red. And then I figure out that your name is Allie. But I don't remember that your name is Allie. And then that the color of your name is red. Oh. Did that make sense? Yeah. So you're going through your catalog list of red names. Right. So it's helping you with your memory. Yeah. Because you have two senses in order or two senses paired together, which reinforces memory. 
Um, but you might rely on the second one rather than the first right. to help remember the first. Right. So those are kind of the four big key characteristics for what might um, help identify someone with synesthesia. On a little side note, I read a short story once years and years ago. I don't remember what it was called. If anyone else knows what it is, let me know. But the story hypothesized that after we die, we essentially like level up and we get a new sense. So in a past life or in an alternate universe, we may not have been able to experience touch. But now in this lifetime, we can. Huh. So I, part of me is like, what if synesthesia is just like a heightened experience of life? It's a bonus sense. It's something that you get when you level up again, which I think is a really, you know, interesting way to think about it. Ray and I were literally this morning discussing, he, he just read a book about basically, he was trying to explain it to me, basically like manifesting Mm. success essentially and it's in the particular book he's reading it's called the sixth sense so um and i was trying to figure out exactly what it was talking about but (laughs) (laughs) um and that in my mind correlated to what you said somehow there we go i love that so (laughs) sixth sense Uh uh-huh maybe a seventh maybe but the merging of the two senses i think is what makes so i'm going to wrap this up with a quote from uh, Larry Marks, who's a Yale University psychologist, and he says, synesthesia tells us something about the nature of perception and what makes things perceptually similar to one another. And I think that that's also a really cool thought. So it's not just about, you know, you get to experience these two senses at the same time, but you're experiencing a heightened connection between the two things. Mm-hmm. So... What a cool way to be able to experience the world. And it totally makes sense with the memory part. Absolutely. I mean, depending, everybody learns differently. Mm-hmm. So if you're a visual learner, if if teaching, all the different ways that would have Kinesthetic and... Yeah. Yeah. All those words. <laughs> what, I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you saying? That was it. What was I saying? I obviously don't have synesthesia because my memory is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it... I'm. So we know that people with synesthesia are more likely to have good memories, but I wonder if people with bad memories can also have synesthesia. I, maybe they forgot they had it. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I'm going to say knows? yes. I also think that you might have a touch of it because of your calendar thing. But I can see your calendar the way you described it. But it's so funny. It's so interesting because the way you described it, you described the first two quarters, but then you kind of trailed off. So, like, in my mind, it kind of, like, fades. Really? Yeah, like, like the bottom two are fuzzy because you didn't see them. Would you like for me to say them? No, I'm good. I, okay. I got my... I got my... <laughs> you got your yearly calendar. Uh-huh. That's really fascinating. <clears throat> Every once in a while, I just... There's a word for this. Um, sonder, which is to, you know be connected to other people's experiences. Um, I don't know that that's the official definition, but I think it would be so cool to be able to experience the world the way that other people do. And like, this is one of the brains that I would want to try out and just see and experience. I think the world would be a better place if people could experience other people's experiences. I think that would be great. I think that would be really great. Yeah. Um, I was actually just talking about that this weekend 
Like there are some people who are just so highly sensitive that they really feel like they experience other people, like even more so than um, being empathetic, but they Mm -hmm. feel other people's pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that would also make people especially compassionate. Yeah. And less shitty. And less shitty. Anyways, so yeah, that's anesthesia. Um, it's very cool. A very cool, kind of happy, uplifting. Yes. Uh, neuro difference that I'm a big fan of and want to learn so much more about. I love it. I love it. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to be talking about our history topic, which is so interesting. Can you tell me what it is? Or are we going to wait for the break? It's childbirth. <gasps> did you hear my burp (laughs) please leave that (laughs) I'll be right back And we're back. And we're back. We switched, so you say it now. I like that. Yeah. Okay, here we go. So where do babies come from? I was hoping to come up with a really quick response, and I did not. Yes, it's okay. I have it written in my notes. Oh, good. This is the story of the stork. Oh, cute. Just kidding. This is way more graphic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we are going to be breaking down pregnancy and childbirth throughout the ages. I love that for us. It is rough. Okay. It is rough. Okay. So a lot of the language that is used surrounding pregnancy and childbirth is obviously very gendered. So I'm going to do my best to be inclusive. Um, There are going to be some quotes, you know, I'll read them as they are, but sure. Okay. So Aristotle had a theory. He was friends with Hippocrates, right? He was Hippocrates. We're going to talk about too. Oh, (laughs) Have you had a chance to talk about Hippocrates in any of yours? I think I talked about him in dentistry. Yeah, you did. You did. So Aristotle had a theory that all animals could be divided into two groups. Bloodless animals, which are going to be bugs, crustaceans, that kind of thing. um, And then blooded animals. Hmm. Bloodless animals were thought to reproduce spontaneously. And blooded animals required mating to reproduce. Did you know that we don't know how eels reproduce? No, I did not. In fact, for a long time, scientists thought that they just came from the Bermuda Triangle. Like, they just emerged. Let's go with that. Conspiracy theory. Yeah, scientists have no idea where how eels reproduce or where eels come from. So they haven't just, like, gotten a bunch together and seen what happens? No, they, I mean, they've tried. They just can't. They just don't reproduce when they're being watched? Yep. I get that. Yeah, me too. I want to be watched. All that performance anxiety yeah so our boy hippocrates believed that both quote male and females had seeds that needed to to come together to create a baby however because there was no physical evidence of a female seed this theory was not widely accepted at the time Hmm. so back like 10 11 12,000 years ago when people started domesticating animals people started realizing if they put a bunch of animals together you get more animals bunnies do what bunnies do bunnies do what bunnies do but it's interesting because 
people didn't quite know how it worked because sex doesn't always create a baby. Right. And it also takes so long for symptoms of pregnancy to happen. So if you have, you know, an incident where there's intercourse, you might not know for four months in humans that you're pregnant. Right. So it was hard to correlate those two things for for a minute. So in 1677, sperm was first viewed through a microscope by Dutch scientist Anthony van Leeuwenhoek. You nailed that last Thank name. Thank you so much. 150 years later, the female egg was discovered by a German sci- scientist, Carl Ernst von Baer, in 1827. I don't feel like you put as much emotion behind that last name as you did the I, first. I, I panicked on the first one because it was one <laughs> long word. This one was broken up. Oh, okay. So in 1876, a zoologist witnessed the first fusion of the egg and sperm of a starfish. Oh. And this is where the case was finally cracked and confirmed about reproduction. And we had our answers. I love that. A little starfish. A little starfish. So throughout the evolution of the human anatomy and us as a species, Uh over the past one to two million years, our intelligence has increased, our brain size has increased. And when humans began walking upright about 4 million years ago, um, our pelvic bones and our our pelvic situation shrank. Hmm. Um, This is why childbirth can be so risky, um, because sometimes women have issues passing uh, babies, depending on how much they dilate, how the baby is turned. We just have a relatively small space. Compared to a lot of other mammals and animals. A baby can pass successfully through the birth canal if all goes according to plan. But when it doesn't, complications can arise during childbirth. If you've ever seen a baby... A few. You you know that once a baby is born, they are essentially helpless. I read an article, and it's so interesting. And it said that scientists theorize that babies should really spend an additional three months in the womb but in that if if that were the case they would be too big they would be way too big to be born oh fascinating so that's why they suck for a while well i knew that um human babies when they're born are like the least developed of Mm -hmm. you know most mammals they got the soft spot to look out for um so it makes sense why we do have to give birth when we do, but mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of mammals when they're born, they just stand up and start walking. Like giraffes. Have you seen a baby giraffe get chased an by elephants. a lion? Oh, an elephants. Oh. A giraffe got chased by a lion. Oh, every a day. baby. It happens every day. Oh, read a newspaper every day. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that that's what was coming up in my newspapers. Yeah, I know, right? Jesus. Um, but yeah, like a bunch of babies can just pop right up like daisies, but not us. No, no. We are ducks in the water. Mm-mm. Midwives, which is old English for with women, have been a huge part of the birth and delivery process. Most of these women throughout history were older and had given birth themselves. They were moms. Aww. Uh, they provided pain management, support, and medical attention during birth. And depending on the time period and location, it was not uncommon for other female family members to attend the birth. Depending on where you were located, other, like, neighbors might help. It was a big process. 
if uh, you know modern medicine wasn't evolved involved and even now with modern medicine there's a bunch of people in the room right um, there's a TV show on Netflix that I found at the beginning of quarantine called call the midwife uh-huh and have you seen it Nope, but I've seen it on the thing. Yep, it's so good. And it's really nice because for at least the first three seasons, nothing bad happens. Oh, you, I think you mentioned that on the pod yeah. before. But yeah, so Call the Midwife. Check it out. Um, it's great. There's a lesbian on it at some point. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Which is, is why lesbian? I started watching it because I knew they had a lesbian character. Is it a lesbian midwife? It's a lesbian midwife. For royal women in the Middle Ages, they would attend church weeks before the delivery and then retire basically to the bedroom or the bedchamber to await their contractions. Uh, Their rooms and chambers would be decorated with elaborate tapestries and gold jewels. Think of like King Tut tomb situation. Um, And the windows would be covered. Like there would be no draft, nothing from the outside in. They would just lock these women away for like weeks before they gave birth. You know, I have to say, I don't know that I ever want to, like, physically give birth. But right. if I were to, that's how I would want to do it. Yeah. Like, bring me gold. Bring me gold. Peel me grapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me be lazy. That's right. In bed. Because I need that time to myself. Sure. Self-care. Especially before an infant shows up. That's right. Oh, Lord have mercy. But fertility was a big deal in essentially all cultures throughout time. Every religion has... A, f- a focus on fertility um, and childbirth, there's a place for it in every space. In Eastern Europe and China in the 16th, 17th century, and even today, women would eat the placenta because it was thought to improve fertility. In Transylvania, women who did not want to have any more children would burn their placenta and place the ashes in their partner's tea to drink. That's some witch shit. Yeah. What you woman? Pliny the Elder, who is a Roman author, suggested women could do one of two things for fertility. If you want to write this down. Okay. One was to eat the eye of a hyena with licorice and dill. Okay. Okay. Or two is to pluck two hairs from a donkey that is being mounted and then tie those two hairs together during sex. So those okay. are both options. So option number one, I think, would be out because I don't have any hyenas nearby. Just They'd go down to the Whole Foods. Hyena eyeballs? They sell hyena eyeballs at the Whole Foods? I'm going to say that. They do. Oh, well, if that's an option, then we'll go, we'll go that route. Because otherwise, I don't want to be distracted by tying hairs while I'm having sex. Sure. It seems very complicated, all of it. Yeah, yeah. Neither of which sound effective in any way. Also, licorice. I'm just like a Twizzlers. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) Oh, no. The medieval Christian church focused on the sin of sex. The Mother Mary who conceived immaculately was basically the ideal, the example. She's so pure. We want to be like Mary. That also sounds like the Bible Belt South. Yes. Um, Current day. They believed in, and some people still believe that sex should only be used for procreation. The medieval church forbids sex during Lent, Advent, Mm. Whitsome Week, which is the seventh Sunday after Easter. Right. That whole week. uh, During feast days, 
fast days, Sundays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. (laughs) So how about Monday at 12 o'clock on a non-holiday? That's right. So this left 105 days of the year that sex was approved. But you could also not have sex during pregnancy, while you were breastfeeding, menstruating, during daylight, so noon is out, (laughs) or during church. Well, the church one seems pretty obvious. Yeah. Let's not and say we did. Yeah. Um, But that's a whole lot of limitations. And of course, like humanity still exists. So I don't know how much people were actually following those. Um, I would have failed at all of those. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not the church one. I don't know that I would have ever had sex in church. Yeah. But the rest of them. Mom, if you're listening to this. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So I think that's so fascinating. There were such limitations on it. But again, you know, humanity lived on. So... People weren't we survived. listening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first time of an artificial insemination into a human was 1799. Really? The first child to be born with in vitro fertilization was in 1978. And those doctors were given a Nobel Prize, which they should. Oh, and they're cool. I love that. Pregnancy tests have come a long way over the years. You don't say. The majority of women, um, like we said, had to wait until like four months in when symptoms started for pregnancy um, in order to confirm whether somebody was pregnant when the child started moving, right? And uh, that movement is actually called quickening. Hmm. In the 1920s, it was determined that there was a hormone present in the urine of a pregnant person that led to growth cells in the ovaries. Uh, They discovered that if you injected the urine of a pregnant person into a rabbit and examined the rabbit five days later, it showed growth in the rabbit's ovaries. The term, the rabbit... That sounds like a really expensive pregnancy test. I know. For every person to have have to have a rabbit. What? Have you heard of this before? No, I haven't. Oh my God, this is like, my family talks about it. So this is where the term, the rabbit died, came from. Which is slang for, for pregnancy because the the thought was if the rabbit died, the woman was pregnant. I have never heard that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, my, my grandma used to talk about it. Well, the rabbit died. That's but fascinating. It is important to note that all of the rabbits died, not just the ones with the pregnancy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure being injected with pee may have had something to do with that. <laughs> I see a correlation. My (laughs) hypothesis is. But Um, they survived the five days. They survived the five days. So it was really when they they, uh, did the examination of the the rabbit. It wasn't until 1969 that the first at-home pregnancy test went onto the market. In 1545, Thomas Reynolds wrote The Birth of Mankind or, quote, The Woman's Book which was one of the first recordings of midwifery and delivery. Hmm. The majority of midwives at the time could not read or write. And of course, they needed a man to come and write it all down and take credit for it. Gross. So because of the age and status of the midwives, these midwives were actually targets for witch accusations in Europe during the 16th century. Not surprised by that at all. It was more likely for this to happen if a child was born with a physical disability. Yeah. And I think that's still the case in some places. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. Um, we see a switch in the late 1700s where men began to take over these roles that the midwives um, had delivery. Mm-hmm. This is where we see midwives being seen as less credible and not properly trained. Men tended to be more traditionally educated and therefore they assume the roles of the new midwives. Today, babies are born primarily in hospitals with a series of staff members who assist in the birthing process. Quote, a Scottish woman was burned at the stake in 1591 for requesting pain relief in the delivery of twins. Burned at the stake. Burned at the stake. After giving birth to twins because the shit hurt. Because it hurt. And... God, I can't even imagine. No. I know every woman is like driving in their car just doing a giant Kegel right now. (laughs) So medication became more acceptable in 1852 when Queen Victoria used chloroform as pain relief during labor. I'm going to say that sounds like a bad idea. It really does. The use of morphine and scopolamine, 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 scopolamine. Also known as Twilight Sleep, <laughs> was first used in Germany um, and popularized by German physician Bernard Kronig and Karl Goss. This concoction offered minor pain relief, but mostly allowed women to completely forget the entire delivery process. Under Twilight Sleep, mothers were often blindfolded and restrained as they experienced the immense pain of childbirth. The cocktail came with several side effects, such as decreased uterine contractions and altered mental state. Additionally, babies delivered with the use of childbirth drugs um, experienced temporarily loss of breathing. Okay. The feminist movement in the United States openly and actively supported the use of twilight sleep, which was introduced to the country in 1914. Some physicians, many of whom had been using painkillers for the past 50 years, included opium and cocaine, um, and they embraced these new drugs. Others were hesitant, Mm -hmm. end quote. My grandmother only remembers one of her births, of her three kids. Really? Yeah. Like, she said she went into the hospital, they gave her some drugs, and she woke up and my dad was born. Yikes. I know. Oh, that's terrifying. And he was born in 52. Wow. Um, And called the midwives, which is really my only reference (laughs) point. Um, They are introducing some type of gas Mm -hmm. to birthing parents. Um, I guess some kind of laughing gas, maybe. I'm really not sure. But it's so fascinating to think that for years, for the point of creation in humanity to the last 70 years ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was nothing, nothing, or at least nothing good, consistent, reliable, and safe. I mean, chloroform, sure. If you're rich and you want <laughs> some crazy side effects, chloroform might be your jam. Yeah. Why not? Uh, uh, opium, opium, love it. Love the opium for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, they also like didn't believe in germs. You know, there's just like, ah, 
Well, they also believed your womb wandered around your body hungry for semen. Oh, Jesus so Christ. let's keep so, some of this in mind. So I did you and you might have talked about this in episode one, but if a woman was trying to get pregnant, she would insert something sweet like honey Ooh. to attract the uterus. I've heard that. Yeah. I don't think we talked about it in episode one. Because your womb might be wandering to your head. And so you need we to gotta call, call her, her back. Yes, so yeah. that, you know, she My can... womb will be bribed with honey. Mm-hmm. There we go. Or sweets. Or sweets. Or food in general. Yeah, just... Big on food. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, which... Br- this all brings us to some modern luxuries, a.k.a. the epidural. <laughs> Next is a quote from a website called Foundations in Feminist Medicine. Quote, what is an epidural? The anesthetic actually refers to the epidural space, which is the space inside the spinal canal, but outside the dura mater of the spinal cord. Though the first epidurals were performed in 1853, it was not until the mid-20th century that epidurals were used in childbirth. 1853? 1853. 1853. How many times can we say this before it really sinks in for me? A long, long time ago. (laughs) In the past, churchmen thought that pain relief during childbirth was blasphemy because it defied the word of God. Defying gravity. Defying gravity. Yikes. So I went back into my Bible today. I went through this whole rabbit hole on the creation story and all this. It also relates to the call episode that's coming out next week um but i was like let me read let me see what's going on um we know there's there's like two creation stories but um it specifically says eve's punishment for essentially quote tricking adam into eating from the tree is that she's gonna have painful childbirth why is it the women have to be punished for everything Mm -hmm. we get punished each month when we're not pregnant there we go. We get punished when we are pregnant and mm-hmm. they don't want to give us meds. Mm-hmm. Um, They're punishing all the women in Texas right now. Do you hear that, Texas? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm just so confused why women get the short end of the stick in literally all of this. Mm-hmm. We also get yeast infections and shit, which just seems wildly unfair. It does. Sponsored by boric acid. <laughs> However, this ideology began to change when Queen Victoria used chloroform to ease the pain of childbirth. Later that year, French surgeon Charles Gabriel Pravaza and Scottish physician Alexander Wood combined the hollow hypodermic needle with a metal syringe for the first time in history. 16 years after Queen Victoria used chloroform, Charles Faval became the first clinician to use a needle and syringe to inject cocaine as an anesthetic during a surgical procedure. Soon enough, this would be used to ease the pain of childbirth in the delivery rooms. In 1941, Robert Andrew Hingen and James Southward developed a technique of continuous causal anesthesia using an indwelling needle. They then studied the use of continuous causal anesthesia during childbirth and its first used was on January 6th, 1942, on a woman with heart disease. (laughs) 
Doctors were unaware whether the woman would survive the labor and anesthesia. Luckily, the mother and baby both survived. As medical knowledge grew, so did use and development of a suitable anesthetic for labor, the epidural. You know what pisses me off? Everything. Mostly. All the things. All the things. Also, that doctors were injecting people with cocaine. Yes, they were. And currently there are in people there and currently there are people who are incarcerated for using cocaine. Doctors literally used to give people cocaine, and now we penalize people for addiction. Yeah. It's just fucked. Yeah, it is. It really is. There's so much wrong in the world. I know. I know. I know. Also, thank God for epidurals. From what I hear, they're real lifesavers. Oh, geez, Louise. So I was curious, Carrie Ann, how much does it cost to deliver a baby? Not as much as they charge you. <laughs> Amen. That is so fucking true. Okay, so this your, part comes. Your episode just has all the hot button issues that yeah. I want to talk about right yeah. now, and I'm trying so hard not to interject every single one. But I saved a little tidbit for the end because I wasn't sure where the hell to like put it in my notes. That one is like a huge talking point. Ooh, cool. We're almost there. So this one comes from our good friends at Wikipedia. Quote, according to a 2013 analysis performed and commissioned by the New York Times and performed by Truven Healthcare Analytics, the cost of childbirth varies dramatically by country because duh. In the United States, the average amount actually paid by insurance companies or other payers in 2012 averaged... Do you have a guess? Uh, seven to twelve thousand. Okay. Yeah, nine thousand seven hundred and seventy-five for in uh, an uncomplicated conventional delivery of one baby. Of one baby. Mm-hmm. Party of one. Uh, how much for a cesarean? Oh God, I don't even know. Fifteen thousand and forty-one dollars. That's less than I was expecting. Yeah, still a lot of money. Still a lot of money. The aggregate charge for healthcare facilities for 4 million annual births in the United States was estimated to over $50 billion. Shit. The summed cost of parental care, child care, and newborn care came to about $30,000 for a vaginal delivery and $50,000 for a cesarean section. End quote. Hey, Texas, if people don't want to have babies or can't afford to have babies mm-hmm. and you're going to charge them this much, then you may want to reconsider your abortion bill or law law. Um, yes, unfortunately, because not everybody can afford this. Not everyone wants to. And they don't need to justify that to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Also, we do so little to take care of kids once they're here. Mm-hmm. So either we need to, you know, start actually addressing the issues with our health system or change the way that we do shit or both. Let's do both. Let's do both. That sounds great. I'm free for both. Cool. I'll sign you up. So this last part, because I didn't know what the hell to do with it, is just like... I cannot even. Okay. There is a hero. Her name is Valentia Vasilyev. Mm-hmm. She was a woman from Suya, Russia, 
who in the 1700s had 27 pregnancies. The fuck? None of which were of one baby. <gasps> Girl. How many kids did she have? We're going to do some math. Okay. Okay. So, so we gonna- have singletons, twins, triplets, quadruplets, which is four. Uh-huh. Quintuplets is five. And it goes up from there. So what did you say? She had four sets of quadruplets. So that's 16. That's 16. She had seven sets of triplets. 21. 21. So 16 plus 21 is 37. And then she had 16 sets of twins. Is 69? 69 kids. 60. 69 kids. Nine Can we get this woman kids. a TLC special already? <laughs> oh my 69 God. 69 69 kids. And then she died. And then this guy had a second wife and she had like 30 kids. Or 20-something. I didn't write it down. But it was, like, so many. Like, why would you need? Just, that's just... Who needs that many kids? And, like, how fertile is this guy? Right. Right. God. Can you imagine four sets of quadruplets? Your body is not your own. Your body is not ready, in fact. No. Good God. No. Holy shit. I know. 69 kids is a lot of kids. That's so many kids. This guy ended up with fathering almost 100 kids. Almost 100 kids. Yeah, and he's not even Mormon. (laughs) Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Holy forking shirt balls. (laughs) So I know that was a lot and it skipped around, but that is the history of childbirth. Well, damn. I know. There is so much to unpack there. So much to unpack. We've got drugs. We've got... Uh, cocaine specifically (laughs) yeah we've got abortion medical issues um just policies and laws in general and then we've got a woman with 69 69 kids kids, yeah the most interesting part i guess was hearing about the um the evolution of the the midwife to the the doctor or the male doctor specifically because Obviously now, you know, women have more rights, but um, disappointing to know that that place, which is such a sacred space, that was predominantly a woman's field, yeah. was then taken away, essentially. Yeah. It was... Uh, uh, discredited, unfortunately. Right. Uh, there's a word for that. I forget what it is. But, yeah. Um, well, and even now we see... Like, there's a push to have babies in hospitals when really, like, midwiferies, um, doulas, Mm -hmm. like, there are so many alternatives, but they don't make as much money. So, the medical industry is still pushing women to have births in hospitals. Yeah, and there there is the amount of time you spend in a hospital is correlated with what insurance you have a lot of times. But the biggest takeaway for childbirth in general is that this is a person with a uterus's experience and parenting in general. Nobody should insert their opinion into any other person's situation. No. If you can't figure out why you have to wear a mask... Um, and you are all about making your own choice for your own body, then you absolutely understand why you should not be able to police women's bodies. Or even, even you know, 
like there are a bunch of of thoughts about the epidural or a c-section or a natural birth right all of those are very special decisions oh absolutely Um, yeah it's i think we just just everybody mind your own business yeah mind your own fucking business do no harm take no shit hippocratic oath yep um wow that's fascinating question and because you did not mention this in your research you may not have researched it Mm -hmm. but i once heard that the reason that women give birth on their backs is because one of the kings of england was pervy and liked to watch women giving birth oh no and that's why we give birth in that way even though it's not actually the most ergonomic Right for women to give birth. That's so interesting. I don't know. I did not research that. I would find that that to be because I think people all around the world do it differently. Yeah. In like Western society, women or people tend to give birth on their back, but I don't know why. So from my research, it it said that basically on the back was the best way for it to be uh, like monitored. The baby, the progression, the dilation, I guess. Okay. Um, that's all I know. Okay. I did not hear about a pervy king. Well, I don't know where I heard it, when I heard it. I have literally no other information, mm-hmm. but what I heard was a pervy king. Pervy king. So. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> but in, in like royal royal households, it was really common to have like a hundred people in the room. Yeah. To like see the birth if it was a boy. I want to marry you, you know. Right, right. Thing. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Lots of weird pervy shit happening. Yikes. Yep. So, Allie. Ugh. <laughs> how do these two topics intersect this week? Girl. They don't. <laughs> I feel like they mine sure is I mean, mine's just so specific. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yours is of course much broader. Mm-hmm. But I would, I feel like I just want to unpack yours more. Like, I want to talk about all the different political ramifications mm-hmm. and um, consequences of the history of childbirth. Yeah. All of those things we will get to over the course of our podcast. We yeah. can't squeeze it all in. Yeah, we only time, have like but... an hour long podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I can get pretty long winded when we're talking politics. Oh, for sure. Just know that we, we are with you. We stand by you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, As women and people with uteruses. Right. And all the people. And all the people. Um, yeah, I just, like, even scrolling back through my notes, I don't see an intersection this week. So, nope. And that's okay. The synesthesia topic is so interesting because it's so out there and 2 to 4% of, of people are experiencing these. Right. And I really am interested in t- seeing, you know, what our listeners have going on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I we think will definitely that check. Um, it's also really interesting to me whenever we have listeners who um, are able to help us come up with intersections. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you guys hear anything from today's episode that you feel like intersects, let us know because I don't Ooh. see anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, I'm excited to hear everyone's stories and connections this week for these two topics. Absolutely. If you haven't left left us a review on Apple Podcasts, only do it if you really liked it. What are you doing? Leave us a five star review. You get a sticker. I'll write you a little note. 
it'll be like a whole little thing. Just, you know, let us know what you think. Um, our pasta recipe is st still up for grabs. We've got some awesome new patrons who we have pending some uh, Patreon picks. Patreon yeah. picks coming up in the next month or so. So if you have your topic in, in line, uh, it is coming. So yep. Yep. prepare yourself. Um, we've also got some exciting news coming up in the next few months related to merch. 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 And actual Angel Ashley is being an actual angel and creating some fantastic designs. So all Stay of that tuned. will be up. There'll be some, you know, for the holidays for sure. Oh, yeah. Yay! Just in time. Yay. Okay. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaudd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.